loud. If you take your Bibles and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it will not be a mystery, by the way, in the weeks ahead where we're going. So you can just stick a bookmark in your Bible. You'll know that we'll be going to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 or wherever we left off the week before and just picking up there. And I'm going to read this morning verse 4 down through verse 9. And we're still in that introduction, Paul's introduction, speaking to the church at Corinth. And he says this to them. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him and all speech and all knowledge, even as a testimony about Jesus was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. That, by the way, is a stunning thing to think about the church at Corinth, as troubled as they were. As dysfunctional as they were, Paul begins by reminding them that they're not lacking anything necessary. You're not lacking in any spiritual gift, verse 7, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I was thinking this week and uh, trying, to, trying to think of a, an analogy or an illustration or something that would help us understand, I think, what Paul's doing here. And I thought about 25 years ago or so, whenever it was, when I shipped off to Paris Island and got to boot camp there. And uh, I was surprised at all the things I thought boot camp would be. I was surprised by one thing, and that was the amount of time that we spent in a classroom. And I don't know if any of you who served in the military had a similar experience or if it was something that we passed through at the time, but we spent a whole lot of time at Paris Island in a classroom, especially during the first four weeks or so that we were there, during the first month. And it was interesting what we were learning. You might think that they would be teaching us about weapons and tactics, or you might be thinking that they'd be teaching us about the Geneva Convention or international conflicts or things like that, but that's not at all what they were teaching us. What they were actually teaching us all the time we spent in those classrooms trying desperately to stay awake and hours and hours of of repetition and them filling our heads with stuff. What they were teaching us was really just the history and customs of the Marine Corps. And at the time, I I didn't quite understand that. I mean, they would teach us how how to speak, how Marines were expected to speak. They have a certain way they're supposed to talk, a certain way that they're supposed to address one another. They taught us how to speak. They taught us what our uniforms were supposed to look like. They taught us about famous Marines like Chesty Pooler and, and these guys and famous battles like the battle at the Chosen Reservoir and the Korean War and all these things. And they were teaching us all about the history and the customs of the Marine Corps. And, and it began to make sense later on. And it makes even more sense to me now that I'm more mature and understand what was going on is that they were teaching us about who we were first so that we could understand how we were supposed to conduct ourselves. You know, it, had a, it has a direct bearing on how you conduct yourself when you understand yourself a certain way. And so they were teaching us that as a Marine, you're supposed to live day-to-day a certain way, talk a certain way, act a certain way, fight a certain way. All these things so that we would, our behavior would change because of our understanding of who we were. And I think that's exactly what Paul's doing in the introductory verses of 1 Corinthians. He's writing to them and he's trying to help them understand who they are as Christians. Who are we as 
believers. And remember that he's writing to a church that's incredibly troubled. The church is in a a disastrous mess, and and we're going to see that play out in the months ahead as we walk through this book. I mean, it's just a disaster. And and not only that, but they're living in a culture that's that's even worse all around them. And we talked about that last week. And, And he wants them to understand in the context that they're living that they're supposed to live a certain way. This book is almost all corrective. Live in a certain way. Understand that you're supposed to live in a certain way as Christians. But before he gets to the how, he spends the first nine verses of this book talking about who we are. You have to understand who you are in order to understand how you're supposed to live. And so that's exactly what's going on there. And you can remember last week in the first three verses, if you weren't here last week, you can go back and listen, but here's a short just summary in the first three verses. He's introducing himself to them and addressing the letter to them. But in doing that, remember, he tells them about how they're supposed to live as separate people from the culture around them. And he talks about the, the, these key words. He calls them the church, and that's the assembly that's called out. And he calls them sanctified, set apart for God by the sacrifice of Jesus. He says that they're to be called uh, or called to be saints together with all those who call upon the name of the Lord. So they're supposed to be holy. They're supposed to live as if, as if Jesus is the ultimate authority in their life. They're supposed to live separately. And we talked about that. And we talked about that meant, by the way, not separate withdrawn, but separate from the sin our culture sees is acceptable, separate from the values that our culture sees or values above and beyond or outside of God's Word. We talked about Jesus being Lord, the ultimate authority, all of those things. And what if we just stopped right there for a minute and we just took stock of ourselves? I would, if, just based on those things, what if we just said, are we being faithful as individuals as individual Christians, are we living separate? Are we separating ourselves from sin and from the values of our culture? Are we separating ourselves from the culture around us when it conflicts with biblical faith that we understand? Are we living as if Jesus is Lord, the ultimate authority in our life? Are we doing those things? What if we just stopped there and thought about it? What about us as a church corporately? Because individually, we make up the church corporately. And, and how are we living? Are we living this way? And, and I think it's really convicting just to think on those things. Just to pause and think about them. Am I living the way that I'm called to live? Sanctified, a saint of God. Jesus is Lord of my life. I think it would have been enough, by the way, if Paul just stopped there. Defined who we were there. And moved on. But I, I think that Paul has a pastoral heart, and, and he wants them to understand more, and he wants them to understand their identity better, and, and I think he's gentle, and I think those first verses are not so gentle, but these following verses are, and I think what he's doing here is he's giving them a list of the benefits that they have in Christ. The benefits. This is like a summary of your benefit package in Christ. Do you know that when you became a Christian, you got a benefits package? Did you know that? And so here's a summary of the benefits package that you have in Christ. And the easiest way to understand it in these verses, and this is the way we're going to walk through it over the next several weeks, the easiest way to understand it is chronologically in your life. Paul deals with your past here. He deals with your present here. And he deals with your future. So you look at it in verse 4. He deals with your past. I give thanks to my God always because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So you receive 
God's grace when you come to Christ. That's your past. And then he says, your present, that in every way, in verse 5, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Skip verse 6 for now. We're going to get to that in a couple weeks. Verse 7, so you're not lacking in any spiritual gift. So you've been enriched by Christ. You've been gifted by Christ for service to the church and to Christ. So that's the now. We're gifted and we're expected to serve. And then he goes on in verse 8. I love this. This is going to be a... An awesome one when we get here. Verse 8. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. And so we have our future sustained to the end, guiltless in Jesus Christ. That's good news. So you have all of these things. And this morning we're just going to focus in verse 4 on the first thing. And I want to talk to you about grace. I want us to just to focus on grace. We're recipients of grace. And we... Love to talk about grace, don't we? Like Christians love to talk about grace. I know in a couple weeks I'll be in Ghana, and uh, and I'll meet some friends of mine there that I haven't seen in a long time, and I'll shake their hands and I'll give them a hug, and I'll say, "How are you?" And almost all of them will respond this way: they'll say, "I'm fine by grace." We love as Christians we talk about grace, God's grace. We talk about it. We love to sing about grace, don't we? It's the most well-known hymn of all time. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I mean, that's the, everybody knows that song. Even if you're not a Christian, you know how to sing about grace. We talk about grace. We sing about grace. But I wonder if we really value grace. Like if we really understand it and value it. And I, and I think that we can see the value of grace. We're going to see the value of grace in this letter, and even in these opening words where Paul, in the first thing that he points to in them, the first thing that he's thankful for in them, he says, I'm thankful for the grace of God that was given in you. You know, Paul is like the apostle of grace. He is the apostle of grace. Paul writes about grace more than any other person in the New Testament, by far. Luke writes about grace. He uses the word 11 times. In his writings. Peter writes about grace. He uses the word 11 times. John writes about grace. He uses the word seven times. James used the word once. Paul writes about grace. He uses the word 82 times. He's the apostle of grace and he seemed to be captivated by it. He seemed to be literally amazed by the grace of God. And I think there's a reason for that. I think there's a reason why Paul was caught up in grace and why Paul was amazed by grace. And I think it's because Paul understood grace in a unique way. Because Paul was a unique person, wasn't he? Because before Paul was Paul, Paul was Saul. And Paul was the the declared public enemy number one of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is who this guy was. He was the, the enemy, the the, the person who was raging against the church. And I think it's important that we grasp this because I think it's important our understanding of grace when Paul talks about it. It's like we define grace. We know what grace is. We talk about what grace is. And, and the most common definition of grace is that grace is just simply unmerited favor. Something you didn't earn. God gives it to you. You didn't earn it. You didn't do anything to earn it. You couldn't do anything to earn it. But that doesn't go far enough. Like last night, we were sitting on the couch. And uh, 
Denise said to me, hey, I just remembered that somewhere out there in the kitchen, she made me go on a little scavenger hunt, so somewhere out there in the kitchen, there's a bag full of treats that I bought you today. I love when I hear that. It's like one of my favorite things. I'm like a little kid. And, uh, she said, I brought, and she does that a lot. She'll come home from the store, and she'll say, you know, I'll say, hey, hey, babe, how was your day? And she said, good. And she'll be unloading her stuff. She'll say, I got you a treat today. I love that. I'm like a little kid. Wow, what'd you get me? And think about that for a minute, because when she says that, she's acted independently of me, Right? I mean, follow me here for a second. She's decided by her own will, her own prerogative, to do this thing for me, to do good for me. And so she's gotten me whatever she's gotten me. By the way, I had a root canal this week. It was lovely. And last night she bought me a whole bag of candy. So I don't know what's really going on here, but... But she, she gets me things, and she does it of her own free will, and it's outside of anything I've done. I haven't earned it. I haven't done anything for it. It's just what she's done for me. And in a sense, that's about as far as we get when we say grace is unmerited favor, just doing something for somebody that they didn't earn. I didn't earn it. She did it. I guess you could define that as grace. But I think that that doesn't go nearly far enough. Not nearly far enough, because biblical grace goes Beyond that, beyond unmerited favor, and it has more to do, really, when you look at it contextually in the scriptures, it has much more to do with God displaying favor to his enemies, doing good to those people who are enemies of his. There's one thing for you to do something good for your spouse, but what about your enemies? That's grace. Paul understood this, being the declared enemy of Jesus. Our first introduction to Paul in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, when he's still called Saul, it says, But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And that's what Paul was doing. That's our first glimpse of him. And then later in the book of Acts, Paul gives his own testimony. And listen to how he describes his life. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So Paul's mission in life was to lock up Christians, to murder Christians, and to drive the Christians away from where he was at. That was his mission in life. But he goes on to tell us in that same testimony about the day that he met Jesus on his mission. While he was on his mission to persecute the church in Acts 26, 12 through 18. This is a pretty good chunk of scripture, but just listen to it. He says, in this connection or in this, in this uh, mission, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when, he had fall, or when we had fallen on the ground, I heard a voice say to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I said, who are you, Lord? 
And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from, the, from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open your eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He calls him that day on the road to Damascus on his mission to destroy the church. Now, what's true about Paul on that day? Or Saul on that day? Here's some things that are true. Remember, we're, we're trying to define grace. What is it? Paul, a living example of grace. What's true in his life? Well, one thing that's true is that Paul was an enemy of Christ. And not in a passive way. He was an enemy of Christ, working to oppose Jesus He was also not seeking Jesus. I mean, don't miss this. As Paul's so amazed by grace, just think of his own testimony. He's not seeking Jesus. He's certainly not living a life that would have been morally pleasing to Jesus in everything that he's doing. So so then how could Paul understand and then explain his conversion to Christ? How would he do it? It's just grace. You get it? Like... I'm traveling along. I'm the enemy of Jesus. I want to destroy everything that has the name of Jesus on it. I'm not seeking Jesus. I'm not living a life that's pleasing to Jesus. But Jesus interrupted my life and called me for his purpose. And that's grace. He extended his grace to his enemies. And the same is true for all of us. All of us. This is grace. We are enemies of God. The Bible defines us that way. Children of wrath. Terry read it earlier. We're not seeking God. Romans 3 says no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. Hopelessly lost in our sins. Ephesians 2. This is why I asked Terry to read it. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ By grace, you've been saved. It really is amazing. And here's the important thing. It's on the screen. If you haven't written it down, already write it down. It cannot be earned. Grace cannot be earned. It can only be received. And they flashed it up there teasing you earlier. But here's the other thing I want you to know that's equally important for us to understand about grace this morning. And that's that grace cannot be earned after it's received. Just think about that statement. Grace cannot be earned after it is received. If I walked up to you today, I'm not going to do this, by the way. So don't come hunting me down afterwards. But if I walked up to you today and and I gave you a $100 bill, I'm not going to do it, but if I did it, if I gave you a $100 bill this morning and you said, what's this for? And I said, just because. My good pleasure, here's $100. Enjoy it. Go have a good lunch. It's my gift to you. You did nothing to earn it. You can accept it on the basis of it was a free gift. Now, what if you said, okay, I've, I've, I've got the gift, 
But then you went home and you spent your whole week doing all kinds of things, trying in your own mind to earn the gift that I gave you today. Does that make any sense at all? I mean, it makes absolutely no sense. And I think some of us are driving ourselves crazy trying to earn grace after we've already received grace. I mean, this for me really is the, is the meat of the message today because as a, as a pastor and as your pastor, I see it so often that people are literally driving themselves crazy over this. I mean, we understand that we've come to faith because of the grace of God, but then we somehow think that we have to stay in the good graces of God by the things that we do. And this isn't, this isn't new. Paul devotes an entire letter to the Galatians dealing with this problem. Galatians 1.6, writing to the Galatians, he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to another gospel. By the way, I heard the... Um, uh, David, I heard you teaching about this this morning. I thought, this is great. This is great. They, they were talking about this. And this church, the churches in Galatia, were experiencing a problem where they'd been infiltrated by teachers who were teaching them that, that in order to be saved, even though they'd already come to know Christ, in order to maintain that grace or maintain their salvation or keep their salvation or to really be a child of God, not only did they need to believe in Christ, but they also had to keep all the laws, all the Jewish laws. And so this was a different gospel. And they were basically coming into the church, imagine this, and they're saying, hey, good for you, you know Jesus now. But all you Gentile men, the first thing you need to do in order to make this thing sure is go experience circumcision and every other law. And so Paul makes it clear that you can't be saved by grace and then stay saved by keeping the law. Like, read the book of Galatians. Galatians 3, 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And this is what I see that's so sad, is that so many of us are struggling like the Galatians. I mean, I see it. We, put, we have these standards that we keep scorecards for ourselves and we measure ourselves. And a lot of times what we're doing is we're measuring ourselves against other people. We're looking at other people and we're saying, well, I see other people and they appear to be more spiritually mature than me. They appear to have it together. I don't have it together. And so I'm measuring myself against that person. And then you drive yourself crazy trying to attain that. Or it's just the subtle things we absorb out of the Christian subculture that sometimes emerges where... For instance, you go to a Christian bookstore or you listen to Christian radio and, and just by the osmosis of life, you absorb the idea that you need to have a good devotion in the morning when you wake up, you need to have a quiet time in the middle of the day, you need to have family worship and devotions, you need to go to a small group, you need to do all these things and, and we start keeping a scorecard and then what inevitably happens is that we create a standard for ourselves that we can't measure up to and then when we don't measure up to it, we begin to, we begin to question and assume that maybe there's at least the possibility that I'm not even saved at all. And that breaks my heart because there's a better way. Rest in God's grace. 
Rest in His grace. I mean, are we so foolish that having been saved by His grace that we're now being perfected by our works? Is that what this is really all about? And stop it. Rest in God's grace. Philippians 1.6, Paul says that I'm sure of this. Who, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So who began the work in you? Christ began the work in you. And who will bring, who will bring it to completion? He will. So just rest in His grace. Stop torturing yourself. Christ is at work in you. Christ is at work in you. You're growing. You're being perfected by the grace of God. And you say, well, how how can I know for sure? How can I know for sure? Well, hang on for two weeks. And I'll tell you how you can know for sure. But I just want you to capture, as we're going to walk through this letter, I want you to capture Paul's understanding of grace. That it's something that can't be earned. That it's given to God's enemies, it's only received by us. And then once we've received it, even then we don't continue to earn it or then somehow stay safe in it because of the things we do. It cannot be earned after it's received. Grace, grace. There's one final thing I want to point to this morning and I want you to be aware of this morning. This is so important. Because I think that sometimes one of the ways that we misunderstand God's grace is that we cheapen God's grace. Because we assume that because it's free, it doesn't cost anything. But I want you to be aware that God's grace is free for us, but it was not free for God. 1 Corinthians 1.4, look at it again. Gary, you can come on up. Look at what he says again, 1 Corinthians 1 4. He said, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God. There it is, the grace of God that was given you. How? Through whom? In Christ Jesus. We receive God's grace through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's not free. It was paid for at a cost. Jesus paid the highest price to receive God's grace. It cost God something to purchase us by His grace. And I just want you to hear these words from Isaiah 53. And think of the cost. Think of the cost of grace. Isaiah 53, God's Word says, For He grew up before Him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, living stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he has been put to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquity. The Bible says he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him.